it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 78. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to talk about moats, competitive moats, business advantages, all the things you look for in a great business. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the ins and outs of those, as well as some things to look out for and how you can find great companies with moats. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and start us off and talk a little bit about moats? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Shout out to Warren Buffett, right? He kind of came up with this idea. Yep. What's a moat? Other than um, the margin of safety... I don't know if they use that for the margin of safety metaphor also, but you know, uh, I'm assuming most of you don't have castles and don't have a moat. So we'll explain that real quick. Uh, if you had a castle, you would try to defend it against attackers who might be pounding at your walls. So if you build a moat and you fill it with water, they're going to have to, I don't know, I guess swim across and you can pick them off. Uh, and so that helps you stay competitive, right? It will help a business stay in business. And so it only makes sense if, if you can find the businesses that are the most competitive, those will tend to have the best results. And so they will tend to take up more market share, be able to get more profits. And that in turn obviously leads to more returns for the investors. So um, Buffett's talked about uh, different types of moats. Uh, some of the ones he looks for, there's a couple other ones I think we can kind of throw in the mix there. And I'm sure he looks at that stuff too. Uh, first on the list, let's talk about pricing power. So the the kind of logic behind this one is when you have a business that basically you're able to increase the price without, the cust- without losing sales, um, then you have pricing power and that's a very, very strong moat. Easy example, simple example of this um, was one of Buffett's first and most successful investments that he ever had. It was, I don't know if it was called the Washington Post or if it was a different, it was it was a publishing company. And because they had basically distribution to whatever cities that they were servicing, um, they they essentially had a, had a monopoly on, on those 
select areas. And so because they were the only newspaper in town, they were able to raise their prices and people would continue buying them. People would continue paying for it simply because there wasn't any other alternative option. Obviously, a uh, the government will try to regulate these things and, and make sure that there aren't monopolies. So they will try to mitigate any company that can use basically uh, force their hand and and use the you know bully their way to to higher prices that the consumer has to pay. So the government will will step in and and try to avoid that as much as they can. But you know, there's also ways that a company can have pricing power by having like a superior product, for example. Or a product that's just in such high demand that people will continue to buy it no matter uh, what the price is. So I wrote in a daily email the other day, I said, uh, as an example, if you had somebody who had a product that was proven to be able to make you younger, uh, I think you could enter the market at $100 and then $150 and $200 and people will continue to buy it because it's something that's so high in demand. You would have pricing power and a very strong business model. So the way uh, it really works nicely is um, with pricing power, it's something that's kind of happens in the background and consumers don't tend to, to really notice it happening too much. And, and if they don't notice, then that's how you can tell that they're doing it the right way. So a lot of times uh, they'll, they'll rise with inflation and then maybe add a little bit on top of that. And so you'll get earnings growth just strictly from that price increase. So you don't have to spend money on acquiring new customers. You don't have to kind of expand into new markets. You can be just a regular old company with its own reliable product. And if you're able to increase the price gradually over time, you can see that will create earnings growth on top of uh, you know, without having to grow in other ways. And so it can be very efficient. It can be a very low cost kind of way to to grow earnings. And it can, obviously that can compound into other things too, right? If if you have a, a product that's strong and it has this pricing power, then you can have this capital that you can either return to shareholders, you could be reinvesting it in other kind of business ventures. You can start to create like a, a empire in that way within the company. I think another example of maybe like a present day business model would be something like Seas Candies, which I know, again, uh, Porter Sansbury likes to talk about on his podcast. People continue to like chocolate and they like to buy chocolate and people love that Seas product. And even if somebody says, hey, I've (laughs) come up with this new science innovation on chocolate, people kind of like their old reliable things and, and it's not something like a technology product where it might go out of fashion tomorrow this could be something that uh, might be a little bit boring but people really like it and it has pricing power because uh, you can continue to increase the price and you can observe it too you can look at what's the price of this before what's the price of it now how's that compared to inflation um, are, and do they have pricing power in this way and it can be a really great way to run a business and to have a strong business model Yeah, those are awesome, awesome ways. And companies that kind of pop to mind when I think of pricing power, uh, Coca-Cola, 
think about, you know, people have, you know, a loyalty to that. And you think about Amazon, you think about Apple. Those are all companies that just immediately spring to mind when I think of pricing power that, you know, they will be able to charge really kind of whatever they want because they've built such a, you know, a great product that people want it and they're willing to pay whatever price there is for it to get it. I mean, you and I talked about Amazon Prime the other day and you admitted that you would pretty much pay whatever it took to have that, you know, product and have that ability to get things, you know, almost immediately. And, you know, the cool thing about the conversation about moats that we're going to have today is a lot of these different ideas that we're going to talk about. They're kind of, some of them are very intertwined with each other. You know, when you talk about pricing power, you can also talk about products and brand loyalty and, you know, some of those other things, and they all just kind of feed off of each other. And once a company achieves that kind of staying power, if you will, then really the the world is their oyster. You know, they can really do whatever they want and kind of go down the path of being a really successful company, even if they've been around for 10, 15, 20 years, they're going to continue to grow the revenue and the earnings simply by the fact of the pricing power that they have. They can continue to raise prices, even if it's gradually, you know, over a long period of time, which will help grow the revenue, even if they're not selling, you know, if even if they're selling exactly the same amount of iPhones that they sold two years ago, just by the sheer fact of, they can raise the price on this that's going to help their bottom line and that's one of the advantages and the strengths of owning a company that has a moat and that's why we look for those when we're trying to find great companies to invest in so i guess kind of going off of that let's talk a little bit about brand loyalty versus commodity products when i think of brand loyalty you know i obviously think of you know, my wife lives and dies by Starbucks. <laughs> you know, she has to go there every single day to get her coffee. And it doesn't matter that I make her coffee in the morning before she goes to work. She still has to stop at Starbucks and get her quote unquote fix. And it has a loyalty to her that she's willing to pay the five, six, seven dollars for a cup of coffee every single day, even though she's already having coffee at home and she's probably having coffee at work, she still has to have that that coffee. And it doesn't matter where we go, where she goes, it always has to be Starbucks. If we're in Minnesota, which is where we used to live, Caribou was kind of the second competitor, if you will, but it never held a candle to her to Starbucks. And she was willing to drive across town to a big coffee at Starbucks versus going across the street to Caribou. So it just really, to me, that showed a, a very much the strength of the brand loyalty. You think about Nike, you think about Adidas, you think about Apple, you Google, you know, think about the, how Google has its tendrils into all the different aspects of our life and what kind of pricing power that has and the brand loyalty that that, that brings to the company. Now, whether or not you can invest in these companies at that time, it still gives you an idea of what you're looking for when you're trying to find a company that has a moat. And so, yeah, it, if you can build, so the way, the way I kind of like to do it is so far um, in the four years I've, I've run the e-leather portfolio, I'll, I'll say, um, 
how do I <laughs> how do I make this simple and not too complicated? So the thing of the so there's upsides and downsides to buying stocks with strong brands. Um and this can get a little confusing. I'll try not to go too too far into the weeds here, but basically when you have a, a stock like let's take Nike. Nike came out, they they built a really strong brand. Now, what makes it hard to find stocks and to value stocks that that are essentially brand stocks is that there's no hard and fast rule for these stocks on the balance sheet. So when you have, you know, think about how you find great stocks and and how we've talked in the past, you would want to buy stocks that have a lot of assets, right? What are assets? Assets are things like cash, um, plants, factories that, that can build products, those are going to be all assets, but the brand doesn't uh, doesn't hold a value in the balance sheet un- unless it gets sold to another company. So basically, let's say Nike got bought out by Adidas, they would put an asset value for the Nike brand inside Adidas's balance sheet. But as it stands right now, because Nike hasn't sold their brand to anybody, their brand essentially doesn't show up in the balance sheet, and so that can make finding these stocks and really finding out their true value kind of confusing and a little bit less scientific. So the reason I bring that up is because the way I've been able to invest in brands so far is I've been able to buy these companies that have portfolios of brands. So the last stock I recommended in the e-letter, recommended it three months in a row, this is a stock that has multiple brands spanning multiple industries, some of them kind of related, some of them not. So they're able to take advantage of of some of the better competitive uh you know, better I hate to use the word synergy because it's so kind of um such a, it's such it's a word so widely used to justify horrible M&As. But uh, when you have synergies or you can have this factory that can manufacture this product plus that product, then it can make sense to have a portfolio of these various products and brands. So like the stock I recommended last month, they have brands in these, you know, similar to like the Starbucks thing where it's a, it's essentially a commodity. It's a, it's a product that uh, you could basically get from China and it's very close to the same kind of performance, if you want to call it that. So like a candle, for example, they have a really strong candle brand. And uh, from what I can see, I mean, it it just looks like a candle. Maybe it smells a little bit nicer than some of the other ones. But to to manufacture and and kind of copy this product, it's not going to be terribly hard. But where the value is there is in the brand. And so just like Starbucks has its own loyal following, this candle company has this candle brand as a loyal following. They have something similar in the baby industry, the sporting good industry. So they, they span a lot of these different industries. And because a lot of that stuff was kind of sold off and acquired, uh, divested, and basically merged, uh, a lot of moving parts, then those showed up in the balance sheet. And I was able to scoop up a company that had a big portfolio of brands and those brands were in the balance sheet. And so I was able to show with numbers that 
I'm getting a great deal based on these assets and picking up some nice brands along the way. I did that two, three years ago with Hormel. Uh, not currently a strong buy now because it did rise in value quite a bit since I bought it. But again, similar type of situation, a company with lots of brands in the grocery space. If you go to a grocery store, you will see a ton of brands that that they carry anywhere. Anything from, uh, I think they own the Skippy brand. Uh, you could get a protein muscle milk from them. You could get spam. You could go all sorts of places on the grocery store and be picking up a Hormel product. And that's all going to my bottom line. So you can find times where either you know, whether it's a company that is temporarily beat up because the industry is not looking particularly bright just for the next couple of years, whether that means uh, waiting until a brand gets acquired by another company and now shows up on the balance sheet and now you have a great price to book ratio along with a brand, a strong brand that you can buy. Those are the types of things you can do and those are the, the ways you can get into some of these competitive moats uh, and and stocks and businesses that ha- that have these kind of characteristics without paying like a steep price on something like an Amazon where <laughs> uh, buying that stock right now is is very very expensive and you know if you were to look at Amazon's balance sheet I think it'd be the same way the actual Amazon brand is not being reflected on that balance sheet so regardless of what sales or, or earnings is is going, just based on the balance sheet perspective alone, that brand's not really showing up. So I think there's a lot of kind of intricacies and, and things to consider when it when it comes to looking at a brand. It can be very strong, but make sure you have the numbers to back it up as well. And unfortunately, that's kind of the nature of it. I mean, you can't you can't put a hard and fast rule on a brand like uh if you know you give you you had if you have an investor in another country who comes from a country where they don't drink coffee and you try to sell them hey you know have this starbucks brand uh i'll sell it to you for two two billion dollars they might look at you crazy because they think there's some sort of cult going on and they don't understand the power of that brand and so in the same way there's a lot of industry experts and a lot of all these different people trying to put values on on these different brands, and so it's not as cut and dry as like, oh, I own a piece of real estate and it's 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 worth this much, and it's it's priced this much on our balance sheet. So th- that gives you some stumbling blocks when it comes to looking for companies with brands. But I think you might not be able to invest in all the brands that you want to, but you can still get some great brands uh, as long as you do your due diligence and kind of invest in a normal type of way. Yeah, those are great. Uh, those are great examples. And finding great companies that own other great companies is a fantastic way of identifying companies that have a brand loyalty or a moat to them. You know, we think about you know our you know grandfather in the investing world. You know, Warren Buffett. You know, his his company is really a vehicle for purchasing other companies. You think about you know, what he's done with Geico and some of the other companies that he's bought, you know, they've helped him create, 
you know, a moat for him, uh, you know, in and among himself with his own company. And he's used the money that he's developed from those to buy other great companies and to invest in other businesses like American Express and Wells Fargo and Coke and some of those other companies. So there is a lot of upside to finding, you know, a brand loyal, a company that has brand loyalty and, and, you know, how that, that moat can help the business, you know, be productive and profitable for you as an investment and kind of segueing off of that think about the superior products you think about a company that we haven't mentioned so far disney think about the products that they have with the movies the franchises that they've purchased recently think about the star wars you know sagas and all the different ins and outs of that we've discussed that a little bit in the past you think about some of the other franchises that they've bought. I'm going to blank on them now, uh, but they—that's uh, really uh, superhero one. Yeah, exactly. Is the the DC or the Marvel yeah, stuff? Yeah, Marvel. Yeah. Okay, I, I I get it mixed up sometimes. At least you got one. One of them. Yeah, ones. I'm not. I'm. I don't follow those as closely as some people do. So, uh, I guess my point with that though is is that they've created a superior product. You know, you think about their. Uh, Disneyland and Disney World, the amusement parks that they have, those are superior products. And the customer service that they provide at those places is just, it's out of this world. It's, you know, top notch. It's what other people aspire to be. And so they've created a superior product, which has helped them create a moat. And it's created a dynasty in a a business that's going to last probably into our grandkids' timeframe. And that's an unusual thing in our day and age in our world. And those are some of the things that you can look for when you're looking for a superior product. You think about, you know, the cell phone world, you think about Apple and you think about Samsung, they have definitely distanced themselves from any other competitor so much so that Microsoft gave up their phone. And I don't know how Amazon and Google are doing with theirs, but it's definitely not a major player in the market. It's definitely those two have created a superior product that everybody wants and are willing to pay any price for. If you're an Apple person, you're going to be an Apple person. If you're a Samsung person, you're going to be a Samsung person. And that's really kind of it. And so when you're looking at companies to invest in, help trying to find, determine whether this company has a moat, you think about those kinds of superior products and what kind of impact it can have on the business and how much it can sustain the business through the tough times or the good times as well. So those are, that's definitely something that I definitely keep an eye on. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. 
Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I love that point about Disney, too. There's an example of combining superior products. Uh, you combine the amusement park with the great franchises and you get this thing, it kind of snowballs on itself and it just gets more and more exciting and and makes each superior product combined makes both of those even better. And it's like, how do you compete against that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about the frozen phenomena that happened a few years ago. Oh my goodness. I mean, you know, as somebody who has, you know, a daughter that went through, you know, watching that movie when she was very young age and, the clothes we had to buy and the towels that we had to buy and the toys we had to buy, the dolls. I mean, oh my goodness, you know, just, you know, the soundtrack. I mean, everything about that whole thing is just, you know, a huge you know, moneymaker. And it, it shows the, the brand loyalty and the power that that company has by creating such a superior product and, you know, creating something that everybody wants to have. It's, it's, it's truly amazing to watch. Yeah, it's almost as the profits naturally take care of themselves later. Yeah, exactly. Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. All right, so we talked about some of the stuff very intertwined, like you said, a lot of the the different examples you can come up with can check many of these boxes. I think one that's maybe not so obvious and not talked about a lot, um, but obviously we like to talk about it because it has to do with financial statements and the numbers. There's going to be uh, they're just stronger uh, financially with with their balance sheet and then just uh, long term health wise. So I think it only makes sense to me that when you have two competitors and one has a lot of debt and one has not that much debt. One has a lot of cash. The other one has a lot of debt. Uh, which one do you think is going to be able to last? Because you know, there's always going to be bull and bear markets. So uh, at a time when profits get pinched, the one with cash is going to be able to continue reinvesting in their business, making it stronger. Whereas the other one 
it's going to have nothing to reinvest. If anything, they're going to be having to pay off debt. So I think that's one very tangible way that you can try to find a company with a competitive moat. And, and sometimes it's not hard to, to look at these industries and, and you just look at the balance sheet. You look at what these companies own and, and how much they owe and what the assets and what the liabilities are. How much cash they have is, is, is right there. So you can see these things right away and you can see that even inside of industries between competitors, there will be some that are much, much stronger than others. And so, you know, sure, you might have a company, maybe not, maybe something that's not as uh, wide of a moat as like a Disney, right? But let's say um, something where the moat's much smaller and maybe the industry is much more competitive. If you if you kind of zoom out and look at a long term thing, not to say everything's a guarantee, but you'll tend to have those businesses that can reinvest more in themselves probably are going to make better products, which can lead to brand loyalty, which can lead to pricing power, which can create more superior products, and it can also snowball from there. But you know, was was that possible unless they were able to reinvest in themselves in the first place? And how do you create a situation where you can reinvest in yourself? You got to have a strong balance sheet. You got to have great business health and, and you got to be able to spend the money without really crippling the business. And so I think that's a really fantastic thing to look at is, and it's very simple. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's kind of intimidating and, and not something that you can talk about much because it's just kind of, uh, we looked at it and that's the picture and that's it. So uh, you just kind of going to have faith that you line your ducks up in a row and, and, and the rest of it will take care of itself. So almost in a way, you have different kind of stages of competitive moats, competitive moat building. And I think having a solid business foundation can, can really be a great beginning to getting you there. Uh, a lot of businesses kind of take the opposite approach, right? Where they'll just kind of spend like mad and then hope that that spending turns into a strong moat, which will turn into strong business health. And, you know, that certainly works out every once in a while too. But I think that's more the exception than the rule. So why try to invest based off the exception? Why not try to invest in something that's a little bit more reliable? Do it the way like Buffett's done. Uh, when he bought Coca-Cola, they had great business health. And uh, they had, if you, if you go back and look at their financial statements, uh, you could have graphed their earnings just in a straight line. And, and it was that way before he bought it and after he bought it. And it was just very reliable, consistent, slow. Uh, not necessarily slow, but not fast. It was just very consistent and kind of plodding along and getting like a, a good, decent growth. And it's it continued that way for decades. So where you get to a point like that is having strong business health. It allows It opens so many doors and allows companies to do so many things and it's a great situation to be in as an investor you have uh kind of regardless of where the company goes in the short term and, and how their earnings performance goes when you have strong health um you're able to collect dividends you're able to see a stable business and that can really help the place that the company is positioned at in the marketplace and in the market share kind of competitive field uh, it brings a lot more stability and that can lead to long-term results. Yeah, those are, those are excellent points. And that I agree is it's certainly not something that's talked about very much, mostly because it's, it's a lot harder to quantify and 
looking at dissecting the company via the business health is not flashy. It's not sexy. It's more about, as you said, building a base and then using that base to catapult their business into a better position. Another aspect of a moat that's not discussed at all is would be areas like patents, goodwill, and tangible aspect assets. And when I think about those, I think about something like a patent is, you know, like a business contract or a legal obligation that gives you the power to continue doing what you're doing. And when I think about patents, I think about something like uh, a Qualcomm, for example, a company that has created microchips and they use patents to control the power of what they're creating and help fight off competitors from copying what they're doing. And it gives them a moat because they can sell what they create at a price that people will pay because they've created such a great product. It will allow them to price it at a place where that'll make them competitive as well as profitable. And it's really hard to fight patents. Uh, The legal aspects that go into that is very, very costly. And so it's, there's always a race to a create something new and to get a patent on it because that gives you the power to price it and, you know, continue your business. And that's one of the aspects of the technology world, which Andrew is going to know far more about than I do because that's what he does for a living. And I'm going to actually let him chat about that a little bit more. Uh, nothing to add. I mean, you covered it greatly. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think with manufacturing, obviously that tends to be something more important than like, uh, going back to our previous examples like Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, yeah, uh, definitely can become a great moat when, when you have a couple key patents that really drive the bottom line. Yeah, for sure. All right. So moving on, when we talk about like disruptors, that's, that's always something fun to talk about. Yeah. I mean, uh, kind of going back to everything we've talked about leading up to this, right? Just having, if you can be first in the market, sometimes that's enough to be the best and, and be the one that kind of sticks. Go back to Apple and Apple's iPod. Maybe it wasn't the first, um, it, it wasn't the first like MP3 player that that kind of combined a couple technologies to to be like the most cutting edge. But they were continuously innovating on their products. You went from the iPod to the iPhone, and, and from the Mac to the MacBook, uh, from the iPhone to the iPad. So you know when you're able to continually innovate like that, you are gonna have better products and that's going to create more cash flows and when you become a company like apple you'll get to a point where you have trillions of dollars overseas uh because you just can't stop making money so with a company like apple they in order to make innovation you got to spend on r&d and and we're just spending on r&d where can that come from that can come from your earnings and from reinvesting those earnings uh, so if you're looking from a, an accounting kind of standpoint, that's called, uh, sorry, no, never mind. Uh, sorry. Can you edit that part? 
I sure can. Okay. So when you have a company that's that has great earnings, are able to reinvest that and and spend on research and development, then those, you know, the more you spend on that, the more likely you are to to come up with some of these innovative products. So. I think that can be a great moat when you have a company that's dedicated to doing that. They might not get the best product every single time, but if they've shown a commitment and, and they've shown a track record and a history and there's similar managements uh, or the same management team that's that's been known to do that, then that can be competitive moat, especially for some of the latest and greatest industries and companies and business models. Uh, that can really be a great driver for competitive advantages and superior products. I agree. And another company that springs to mind when I think about it is Amazon. They are not necessarily a a disruptor in the innovation aspect of it, but in the acquisition and conquering of other areas of the business world, that is definitely where they come into the disruptor realm. You think about the fear that kind of gripped the market a few years ago when they purchased Whole Foods and the reaction to that purchase in the grocery store realm sent shockwaves through there. You know, some of the huge supermarkets like, um, oh gosh, uh, Kroger uh, springs to mind. Some of the big companies like that, there was a lot of fear in in the market and how much that was going to affect. It hasn't seemed to have played out quite as much as they thought it was going to initially, but they have proven through the years that they are not afraid to take on any sort of retail world and stick their nose in there and see what kind of things they can do to, you know, gain a foothold and, become the competitor you think about the online world they started off as a bookseller and now they're the greatest online sales you know force there is out there and walmart has had to fight mightily to compete with that and a lot of brick and mortar you think about the effect it's had you know through the years in malls and retail and just in general it's become you know, kind of a dinosaur. And that is really all because of what Amazon has been able to do with the internet and their online marketing and sales. It has created a beast that has changed how we buy things around the world. And that's a fascinating study and a fascinating to me, uh, illustration of how they've been a disruptor and they've started to go into healthcare. They've, you know, looked into becoming a pharmaceutical company and a wine distributor and just, you know, anything you can think of. And they're just not afraid to stick their nose in there. I think to me, that's you know a great example of a disruptor. Yeah, hundred percent agree. All right. So let's move on from kind of talking about some of the features of most. Let's talk a little bit about how to not use them when you're making investment decisions or to how to truly find, you know, a competitive mode. Yeah. So I saw this article this morning. I um, showed it to you. Basically it was a article that said Netflix's pricing power means that this stock is not overvalued. So based on uh, Finviz's price to earnings ratio on Netflix today, 
Uh, I see a lot of overvalued metrics just in general. So their price to earnings is 145. Even on a forward PE basis, it's at like a 79. The price of sales is at a 10. The price of books at a 33. Uh, really, really priced for huge success, right? Really, really highly overvalued by almost any metric you can possibly and reasonably talk about. So in this article, uh, it's by Intrinsic Investing. Um, they said that if you take Netflix's pricing power into consideration, that the based on the uh, adjusted EPS earnings per share and adjusting the PE, uh, that the PE is actually much lower than what they currently are at. So as an example, Netflix charges $9.99 right now for a subscription. They were saying um, Netflix does have the pricing power, and if they were to capitalize on that pricing power, they could raise it up to like, if it was up to $15, they would see their PE drop to 26.3. If they raise their subscription price from $9.99 to $20, then their PE as it stands today would actually be 13.9, which arguably does look undervalued. However, I think you can get into a lot of trouble if you start to adjust valuation models based on how you perceive uh, a competitive moat. I think that's kind of putting the, the cart before the horse when you start to make such rosy prediction, predictions and projections that now we're we're trying to change reality in order to fit this narrative where we need to be looking at competitive moats objectively. Is it true that they have pricing power? I think it is true. The article talked about how uh, they've successfully uh, were able to raise the price several times from, I think it was $6.99 to $7.99 to $9.99. Uh, yes, they have pricing power. Will that pricing power continue? That's debatable. Um, and can you adjust your valuation based on how you perceive their pricing power? I think that's where you can really get into trouble because I think a competitive moat should be a feature of a stock, uh, but it shouldn't be the main reason you're buying the stock. You always need to remember about valuation and remember that there's a reality to what where the business is now. Obviously, there's a future component to buying stocks, and, and that's what makes buying stocks so tricky. However, if, if it truly is a competitive moat, you should be able to see its impacts today and for the future. And I don't think it's smart, wise, or even fair to be playing with the financials and, and making these absurd projections to, to make a current price that's that's obviously overvalued to try to kind of excuse that and try to make exceptions to the rule. I think that's that's a big trap and a big mistake you can make is, is when you look at a reality of a stock and, and what the financials are telling you, and then suddenly you, you're, you're twisting those numbers around just because it's you don't like what the numbers are telling you. I think if you're going to invest based on PE, invest based on PE and don't do it by by adjusting things and, and uh, making projections on on how you think their competitive moat should play out, I would one hundred percent agree with that. I think one of the things that would scare me about doing that is 
you're now projecting into the future as if you have a crystal ball and you know what's going to happen. And I guess to play devil's advocate, I would argue that they don't have the pricing power to almost double what they're charging people now. Uh, I, as a Netflix subscriber, I don't know if I would pay 20 bucks a month to have what I have now. I don't think it's worth that. And you also have to take into consideration. It's not, it's not operating in a vacuum. There is a huge amount of competition with this area of business. You think about the quote unquote cable cutters of which I am a member of. There are people out there, a lot of people, and it's a growing, growing number of people that are going away from cable and growing towards subscription-based television viewing. And, you know, as a person who has has cut the cable and doesn't watch TV in that way anymore, you know, I've gone the route of using Netflix, Hulu, and YouTube TV. And that's how I watch, our, that's how our family consumes this stuff. And I go back and forth on whether I want to have YouTube or, I'm sorry, Netflix or Hulu. And between those two, there's a huge competition about kind of how they're placing themselves in the market. And, you know, we've talked a little bit off air about what's the impact it's going to have when Disney gets into the world of this. And they put their foot in and what the success that they've had with everything else that they've touched. Who's to say that they can't become the great disruptor in this market. And, you know, that's not that far off that they're going to start doing this. And it's going to have a huge impact on Netflix. And, you know, Netflix has started down the path of creating their own content because of the expense that they've had to generate of buying all this other content that they're using. So they've actually found it more competitive competitive for themselves to try to create their own content because it's actually cheaper for them to do so. And, you know, these guys were talking about the PE and and this, that, and the other thing, but the company has been operating, you know, close to the, very close to the neck of whether they're a profitable or not profitable company for a very long time. That's being generous. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's, it is. And you you think about the earnings that they've actually been able to generate versus, you know, what the, the stock is, you know, you know, what you're paying for it. It's, it's kind of obscene. You would never ever in a million years go to a car dealership and buy a car for 142 times what it's worth. You just wouldn't. So I guess for them to project that into the future is it's, it's, you use the word absurd. I think that's probably a really good word for it. And it would, make me very weary i'm not trying to bash these guys but i don't agree with their their theory on this i i just don't think that that's a logical way to look at investing in a company by projecting what you think that this company's pricing power could or could not do in the future and i would do the same thing if i was if i was in trying to invest in apple i'm not going to project what their pe is going to be based on what i think they're going to be able to sell their iphone for in 5 10 years from now who knows what's going to come along in those 5 10 years that's going to maybe out take apple down you just never know i mean 
there's so much competition out there and what's the greatest way to create competition is by having a company that's successful. And then everybody's going to want to get in on that because they can see that they're making money for it. And the kind of the same rule applies with Netflix. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think that their theory and their reasoning is faulty because, you know, I argue that they don't have pricing power. It's such a competitive business and they are not the innovator or leader. They were at one time, but people have caught up and they've caught up very quickly. And Amazon has gotten into this as well as is Apple. You know, everybody's in the race to try to create their own content and try to create this business. And they've done it because Netflix was successful and, they were doing, you know, great things. They were a disruptor, but I think that time has come and gone. And I just don't think that this is a sustainable model for them to raise it to $20 you know, a month for a subscription so that they can get their PE down to $13 or 13. It's just, I, I just don't agree with that. Guess who just became majority shareholder by acquiring Fox, um, majority shareholder of Hulu. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's Disney. Yeah. And then we, yeah. we I mentioned a couple of weeks ago how they're pulling out of the whole network thing. Uh yep. the contract with Netflix. Right. So they won't be putting their content on there. Yep. Amazon's is pretty decent too. Uh yep. you know, that you could do the video stuff just from being a prime subscriber. Right. So I I like that cuz you can download and I've been using that when I'm on the plane. Yeah. I think that's yeah, really cool. Good. I mean, they don't have as much content now or it's not as good. It's like <laughs> Kind of like these weird, uh, like some like offshoot Harrison Ford movie was on there. I was like, yeah, right. hey, this isn't bad. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's probably only going to get better. Yeah. And there's, a, there's so many options out there now. So it just, I, I just think that that is maybe, you know, kind of a pie in the sky, you know, super optimistic way of looking at something like that. And that's the danger, like Andrew said, of projecting you know, kind of the rosy picture down the road of what a company could do with their pricing power as opposed to just basing it on the actual now facts of what you think the company can do right now as opposed to what they can do in 10 years. That's, you know, that's a really, really hard place to be as an investor. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, being overpriced by 140% or 140 times, like you could easily find a company that's, uh, a fifth as expensive, and, and you could argue that has similar pricing power in their industry, yes. and you wouldn't have to pay not nearly as much. Right, exactly. Well, uh, a perfect example to illustrate this this point that we're talking about. If you go back twenty, thirty years, Sears was the king in the retail world, and you know this week they announced they're going bankrupt. So, you know, business changes, everything changes. It's always moving. It's always, there's always going to be somebody coming up trying to take a piece of the pie. And if the company doesn't stay relevant and do the change and do the things they need to do, they go the way of the dinosaur. So I, I think that's stuff to be careful of. I think it's exciting to talk about competitive moats. It's obviously been a major feature of Warren Buffett's investments and, and what's made him so successful. And it can be uh, some great characteristics to find and to give yourself success in the stock market as well. However, you also need to be careful. Make sure you're not forgetting about valuation and you're not doing absurd things with valuation. I think another key point with all of Buffett's 
uh, stock buys, even with the one where people were saying, wow, he moved away from value investing and, and he bought Coke at a much higher valuation than, than he was normally buying businesses back then. Uh, but even then it was still, uh, on other metrics, it was still reasonably valued, if not undervalued. So even though a company has competitive moats, make sure first and foremost, you're getting the margin of safety on these. That means you know how much the price is, you know what their financials are, you know what price you're paying in relation to those financials. And then consider like a competitive moat as something that maybe separates first place and second place or or something that's kind of like icing on the cake. I think if you can find businesses that are trading at a, a discount to their intrinsic value, trading at great prices, I think you can select from those from those several votes in this feature or that feature and that can really lead to some great long-term success and can help you make what's this product line look like well you know uh just based on my own observations and experiences i really think that this brand strong or this product is strong and i compare it over here to this stock which is also kind of trading around the same type of valuations but this looks really commodity to me and it doesn't look like it has any sort of moat other than the fact that it's just there and producing a product. That can help you make some tough decisions. And, and if you can load your portfolio up with a lot of these uh, competitive moats, you might find uh, various businesses that are able to grow them and grow them. And then it might snowball into a great company like an Apple or Disney or any one of those companies we've talked about today that have these strong competitive moats. So I think something to be aware of, something to look for, but also at the same time, something not to overvalue and something not to put too much emphasis on. Make sure you have everything else taken care of first. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation on competitive moats. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and found a thing or two in there that will help you with your investing. So without any further ado, you guys go out there and have a great week. Invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and we'll talk to you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.